to all things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy. I'm your host for today's episode, which is finishing up part one and going into part two of the Butcher of Buffalo. So finishing up episode 13 and rolling into episode 14. So it has been amazing so far this past week. I've had quite a few people ask about the podcast. Hopefully they are enjoying them. And the folks that have been downloading them have been some friends from high school. Hopefully the doctor that I talked to on Tuesday, uh, the assistant, hopefully he's enjoying them also. That was kind of an interesting conversation. But other than that, not a whole lot has been going on this week. It's been fairly quiet. People are back to work. So after the holidays, folks have been fairly healthy and whatnot. So I've been kind of trying to get back into the groove here back at home and getting caught up on laundry. Yay. It's like the worst chore ever. Given that dishes, I'd rather do dishes any day of the week than laundry. I I don't know what it is about laundry. I just hate it. I hate it. Can't stand it. I I don't know why. I I, I don't know if anybody else is out there about laundry. I, I just don't like it. And there's only two of us right now. I had kids and at any given time while they were growing up, there would be at least four to five loads of laundry that had to be done. And I had two girls while they were growing up. So it was constantly going. And when they had sports, it was even more. And it seemed like never ending going. And then there was the sock basket. It seemed like our dryer just ate socks. There was, there was always mismatch. And back then it wasn't cool to wear mismatched socks. You had to have matching socks. And even, I mean, even for me growing up, you had to have matching socks. If not, I mean, you got like the beat down going of what the heck's going on. Why aren't your socks matching? So I'm a little OCD about matching my socks. But as the kids were growing up, there was always a basket. And I'm not talking about a little basket. I'm talking about a round basket that had socks full of non-matching socks And I never could find them. Finally, I just got to the point of just, you know what? I'm going to throw this crap out. I never could find the match. Eh. So I just bought new socks. I had no idea where they were until we moved. And then we found them. And they were in the kids' closets. So, and anybody who has small kids know that whenever you ask a kid to clean, everything goes in the closet. So... And I hated opening my kids' closets because I never knew what was going to fall out at me. So, but anyways, on to other things. We picked up some new listeners, one from Australia. I, I have to say that we are, pictures that come out from Australia are absolutely, you know, terrible to see. We Australia itself is definitely in our thoughts and prayers with the the fires that are going on there. I mean, just to watch what has been going on has been absolutely devastating to see. 
but we appreciate it. We appreciate you taking the time to download and listen and hopefully everything can come into, can get under control and, and the fires can be taken care of. We also have some new listeners here in the state. We picked up some in Wisconsin, uh, some of, uh, also, some of my fellow classmates that I graduated from high school also downloaded the podcast. Uh, so just a little shout out for those that are alumni. That being said, let's jump into this episode, which again, it is a finish from episode or 13, part one of The Butcher of Buffalo who was Joseph Christopher, and then starting into part two of the second Butcher of Buffalo, we'll go into who he was and what he had done. But the last part of the Butcher of Buffalo for Joseph Christopher, there was a book that just came out not too long ago. The author... She believes that she understands or knows Christopher's motive, and she believes that it was fear. Paranoid schizophrenics killing out of fear, which for him was an understatement. For Christopher, it was uh, abject terror. And those were her quotes. The author's name is Catherine Palermo. And her book is called Kitty Genovese, A True Account of Public Murder and Its Private Consequences. Now, like I said, her thought process was is that because of his paranoid schizophrenia, uh, he thought it was out of fear. And because of his diagnosis, he believed based on his delusions that um, he had absolutely something to fear and that he was under attack. Uh, Other paranoid schizophrenics realize uh, they are delusions. So, but they also, for them, their feelings are reality. Okay, so this author was saying that because he had the schizophrenia and these delusions that went along with it, this is why he had to do these murders. But the law officials agreed with the late uh, Buffalo homicide chief, Leo J. Donovan. Christopher's rage stemmed from blaming the blacks for his late father's handgun collection being taken from him. His pistol permit had been revoked for target shooting at a local college pistol range. And it really didn't go into much more than that, that it was just that his father's gun collection had been taken in. Not just, hey, he was on this property and he shouldn't have been, so he took away his pistol collection. It just states that, well, his collection was taken, he was... It was revoked, so we took his his collection for 
target shooting at a local college, pistol range. So New York's laws, gun, shoot, uh, gun laws, are a lot different than anybody else's. For example, a concealed carry permit here in PA does not carry over to New York. Whereas if we were, if you had a concealed carry permit here in PA, you could carry it over into Ohio and vice versa. But for whatever reason, New York is not that way. And there's some other places that uh, I'm sure are like that, but New York is very, very, very tough on their gun laws. Now, Palerno, <clears throat> who's the author of the book, instead pointed to the pattern of racial tension and the prejudice that Christopher experienced while growing up on Weber Avenue in Buffalo's Bailey East Delavan area at Burgard Vocational High School. She's stating that the neighborhood itself was changing <clears throat> and there was a lot of tension. Through the interviews with people from Christopher's past, friends, neighbors, and teachers, Palerno found that some instances, incidents that could have influenced his outlook on the black community, especially when his mind started to deteriorate under paranoid schizophrenia. And there were two examples from the neighborhood and school where a group of white and black kids yelling at each other on the streets <clears throat> in the early 70s racial bullying at the uh, Burgard where Palermo was told blacks would surround white kids going to school demanding a dollar to ensure his safety. And it's plausible that's where the fear rose as a child, but what about as an adult? So, I mean, could his memories that he has as a child were they that intense that they fell over into his child, his adulthood? And as the schizophrenia began to take over, did it really intensify that fear? And it's hard to say. I was, I'm not in his head. I, I, am, I do not suffer from schizophrenia, so I don't know. And those who suffer from schizophrenia some have a hard time taking their meds and staying on it because they feel like once they've been on it for a while, they feel like they're okay. They don't need those meds. And, and that realization is, is that they have to continue taking those meds to keep that feeling going. And it's a vicious cycle. And for anyone not living in the community at the time, it would have been hard for them to understand the fear that had gripped Buffalo's understanding of what was going on within the black community, kind of like living around Maryland, Virginia, or the DC area for the Beltway shooters. Uh, we could watch it on TV and we could see what was going on, but we did not know at the time what it was like living around that area. Uh, during that time of the Beltway shooter, my ex, husband's uncle and his aunt and her husband they all lived in that area and his uncle he worked for a I want to say a glass fitting company they, that they did the glass windows for uh, buildings and businesses and stuff like that and he said it was very tense going to work because you did not know where the next shooting was going to be you did not know 
who those people were going to shoot because at the time they only thought it was one shooter when it ended up being two. It was the driver and then the person who was shooting. So black people started carrying weapons for protection. And you don't blame them because look, there's someone out there who are targeting blacks or dark-skinned people. If you don't have a permit to carry, you know, what else are you going to carry? And and the first couple of people, he just walked up in the to the, behind them and shot him in the back of the head or behind the left ear. So in some instances, that person didn't even see it coming. So that fear would have intensified immensely as these killings kept going. And then Buffalo <clears throat> suddenly gained unwanted national attention. Again, just like the Beltway shooter, that area, there were so many more reporters than what they really wanted. Anytime there are the killings and serial killers of that kind of nature and somebody gets a hook into that story and it starts to take lead, people start to show up. Jean-Benet Ramsey, the uh, Turban children, uh, this kind of case. People start showing up. They will start setting up on lawns. They don't care. They know there's a story there and they want it. They want to be that first person to get that lead story. That makes their career. It could break their career. All right. So they're getting that national attention. And then after Carl Hand, who is a who was a and I say was because I will go back and I will look into seeing if this person is still alive or not. And that's the only reason why I'm saying was. A racist white supremacist announced plans for a rally, which is, you know, and I say this with sarcasm because you cannot see my face at this point, just, you know, what that city needed, you know, an asshole in a bathrobe yelling racial slurs. A crowd of 5,000 people gathered on the steps of City Hall for a unity rally day. You know, basically good versus evil, decrying racism and the killings. It's just like when the Ku Klux Klan was going to show up down in Dayton, Ohio recently. They, they were going to hold their rally down there. Well, but the only thing was is they couldn't wear their robes. They couldn't wear their masks. Well, once they said that, nobody from the Ku Klux Klan showed up. But the people who were there to protest, oh, hell yeah, they came out in force. No, we don't want that crap in our city. You don't need that crap in your city. There's enough crap that's going on in this world. And the last thing you need is an asshole in their bathrobe showing up and decrying this person isn't good enough or this person isn't good enough because of their skin color or because, you know, their sexuality. Who the fuck cares? If they're not doing anything to you, what the fuck do you care about anything? Their religion shouldn't matter. The skin color shouldn't matter. Sexuality shouldn't, should not matter. If it's not affecting you personally, meaning you're not struggling with that, you know, problem of do I, as a person, am I gay or am I not gay? If that's your issue, then 
that's what you need to struggle with. And you need to have those, those, uh, services available to you, meaning do you need to go to counseling? Do you need to have someone to go talk to, to help you be able to come out, you know, and are you going to come up against obstacles? Absolutely. Because not everybody understands or wants to accept that and why I don't know. Gay is who you are. I, I had that conversation. You know what? I don't care if a child of mine is gay. The only thing I want is grandchildren. I don't care whether they're two-footed or four-footed. I don't care. Furry or non-furry, I don't care. As long as you are happy. However that makes you happy is what makes me happy as a person. Skin color. You know what? Skin is only so, so thick. Underneath, guess what? That person could be your donor match. That person can still, you know, transfer blood to another person. We're all the same. And that's why that saying goes, it's only skin deep. I, who cares? We're having the issues between religions and we're always going to have those religions. But what people don't understand is that whether you say Yahweh, whether you say God, or whether you say, or whether you say Allah, it's the same word. It's God. doesn't matter. It's just different languages. How you get about it, we all have the same prophets, the same three main religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islamic. <clears throat> After that rally, uh, the people were just not scared. They were past that point. They were scared to death. <clears throat> and uh, the fear in the black community was overwhelming. And this was a quote from a retired appellate division justice, Samuel L. Green. <clears throat> you were scared to death because you didn't know who this person was going to hit next. In 1983, Christopher sent the buffalo. There was no going out with a bang. There was no, sh you know, shootout with law enforcement or anything like that. He just got breast cancer and died. So that was the end of Joseph Christopher. So which takes us into episode 14. And the Butcher of Buffalo, part two. And this is about Altamio Sanchez. And Altamio was a machinist at a, and factory worker who worked afternoon and night shifts at the former American Brass Company plant on Military Road in Kenmore, Buffalo area, living in the Cleveland Hill neighborhood of Chautauqua, New York. And his family moved to the U.S. when he was two. His father died when he was young. His mom did marry again, and Sanchez and the family moved to Florida before living, uh, moving to the Buffalo area, which to me, that's a huge drastic move. It's like going from Hawaii to Arizona. It's two totally different climates. 
and I really just totally did the hand motions like you all can see it. Sanchez has one brother and one sister, which was described by an aunt, uh, and Sanchez was described by an aunt as being serious, quiet, but nice. So Sanchez, moving forward, he married a woman named Kathleen, and they have two grown adult sons who, when they were little, Sanchez coached their baseball teams along with their little league baseball game. So this guy pretty much sounds normal, you know, your everyday normal neighbor that you would, you know, just, hey, how's it going? You know, normal. He played golf, he gardened, and like I said, lived a normal life, you know, which by today's standards, you know, whatever normal is. He uh, also registered to run in the annual Linda Yalem safety run, uh, which was formerly called the Linda Yalem Memorial Run at the University of Buffalo. But here's the kicker. Yalem was one of his murder victims. So let's mark that as mistake number one. And he, Sanchez himself was involved in the community. He was, he was overall liked by his neighbors. So well liked that they called him Uncle Al. And, and that was due to his charm and his interactions with them. When Sanchez began to strangle and kill his victims, it's believed that he used a rope or cord also, um, he would beat or rape his victims during the attacks, and several of them are thought to have fought hard against him. In later years, Sanchez would use ligature wire or a garret uh, to strangle and suffocate his victims. DNA evidence suggested that the bike path killer was of Hispanic descent. descent. Now, he had a couple of different names, Bike Path Killer being one of them, and then the other being the Bike Path Rapist. So, and the, the reason being is because he had three murders within his time of assaults and rapes and murders. His murders, the dates of his murders were 1990, 1992, and then there was a long span in until 2006. His victims were Linda Yalem, who was a sophomore at the University of Buffalo, and Yalem was killed in Sept September 29th of 1990. And I, I hope I'm saying this lady's name right. I, I would hate to butcher it for the sheer fact of out of respect. Mahane Mazur. Mazur was murdered in November of 1992. Now, when I did some research into this person, not Mahane, but Sanchez, one of the people made count, made note that Mazur was a, she had some drug history and that she was a prostitute. Mazur herself had a daughter. Now, out of his three murders, there was her and the next person, Joan Diver, 
she was killed, I want to say it was 16 years to the day of Yalem's murder. <clears throat> he killed Diver on September 29th, 2006, but her body was, um, and her body was found on a bike path uh, in Newstead, New York on October 1st, 2006. And Diver herself, she was a mother of four. She was a stay-at-home mom, but as he had acquired the nickname uh, for the bike path killer and the bike path rapist due to the fact that many of his crimes took place near secluded bike paths. And then on May 16, 2007, Sanchez pled guilty to all three murders of the women. So like I said, his mistake was, but he, he had um, DNA everywhere. On January 15, 2007, police in, East, in Erie County, New York, because remember, Erie County, there's different Erie counties. There's Erie County, PA, and there's Erie County, P New York. Arrested Sanchez and charged him with the murder, Mahane Mazur, to which Sanchez pled not guilty. On January 19, 2007, Erie County Grand Jury voted to indict Sanchez for both murders of Yalem and Mazur. DNA, DNA was found at eight crime scenes matches DNA secretly taken from Sanchez before his arrest. Many of the rapes that Sanchez is connected to will go unprosecuted due to the statute of limitations on the prosecution of rape that was in effect in New York at the time. Those crimes were committed. He, Sanchez, is also a suspect in an ongoing investigation for the murder of a 15-year-old girl in 1985. On August 15, 2007, Sanchez was sentenced to 75 years in prison with no chance of parole. He currently has the possibility to be moved to a facility closer to his family if he confesses to further murders, meaning they're looking for him to confess to that murder of the 15-year-old girl. If he tells them what they want to know, he'll get that chance to go back closer to his family. Now, there is another man that was charged in these uh, murders slash rapes and his name was Anthony Capozzi. In March 2007 Anthony Capozzi was freed from state prison after serving 22 years for two rapes with a similar MO <clears throat> which is modus operandi. After the arrest of Sanchez <clears throat> investigators realized that the crimes were similar was in the same area and Sanchez and Capozzi resembled each other with a DNA sample from Sanchez, it linked him to the rapes for which Capozzi was convicted for in 1985. Capozzi had always maintained his innocence, which I have to say I watched a show recently that had to do with not a more recent murder, but a, a recent case where the convicted person has spent 30 years in prison but has maintained her innocence the whole time. Now, she can get out. However, if she wants out, she has to own up to her responsibility of what she did in this case. And in that, in that being, is that, and this is the case of the teacher who basically got her students to kill her husband. In that particular case, 
the students were the ones who did the murdering and they spent less time in prison than what she has and she got convicted for life. This article that we were, that was in the New York Times talks about what they were seeing as the, the detectives were tailing Sanchez. The uh, man sitting at the back of the table had the same imp impression on Rebecca Clark that he had on countless others, respectable but unremarkable. This guy totally blended in. He was short, bald, he wore a plaid shirt, no different than the many other men around there. He had a good posture. At one point, he started rearranging the tableware in front of him, kind of compulsively. The manager thought, and he was a Latin American, and the spot was called Soleil. <clears throat> there were undercover detectives at the bar watching this man, and the authorities believed Bike Park Rapist and responsible for three murders and at least rape, eight rapes since 1981. And one of the detectives showed the manager his badge and gave her instructions not to touch anything on the table that Mr. Sanchez shared with a woman who matched the description of his wife, Kathleen. Since the plates could not just sit there, a busboy needed to clear them, which just left a water glass for Mr. Sanchez and two others as the couple left Soleil. Sanchez led an or at this up until this point, Sanchez had led an ordinary life on the outside for decades, raising children who brag who he bragged about, just like any parent, like we said, played golf, he worked as a machinist <clears throat> on the outskirts of town. But Sanchez, who was 48, was also the reason that parents in this area, who the manager included, had for years warned their daughters not to walk forested paths alone. The prosecutors were expecting to bring charges to a grand jury that particular Tuesday. Now, this was written um, January 18, 2007. They were expected to bring charges to a grand jury that Thursday in the 1990 rape and strangulation of Linda Yalem, in which we spoke about. Sanchez was among the 1,548 people who entered the Linda Yalem Memorial Run that police regularly videotaped for clues. Like I said, that was one of his mistakes. And we often see that in a lot of murder cases that they inject themselves in the cases. They try to be overly helpful. They have to know what's going on, you know, um, is there anything that they can do? Blah, 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 blah. Sanchez had already been arraigned on murder charges for <clears throat> Mahane Mazur, and they believed that he had also killed Joan Diver, which again, we spoke about. And then it goes on to talk about, in, in the addition to the murders, the authorities say that Sanchez had raped the, at least eight other women between 81 and 94. And then it goes on to talk about that the Sanchez's attorney, Lo Tempio, said Sanchez was not guilty of any of the allegations and suggested he would seek a change of venue out of concern for his client could not get a fair trial in Erie County, which probably would have been a good option since, you know, most areas, everybody knows everything about everybody. 
it goes on to talk about Sanchez himself in his home. There was no history of violence in his household. This guy trying to fit that profile on him, the, the attorney is like, he, he just doesn't fit that profile, which you can't go on. Because if you look at other serial killers, look at the BTK killer. Uh, he went to church, was very active in his community, Ted Bundy. He had a girlfriend who had a daughter. Not everyone who decides to go on to kill or rape people have bad home lives. It's just some secret that they carry with them and some kind of compulsive thing that they need to do. That they feel, I should say, they feel they need to do. And then they go in to talk about his family neighbors and stuff like that, that, you know, this guy had gone on to, he would offer up his generator after a storm. He helped install his neighbor's heated gutters. He worked at the same job for 23 years. And the only thing he seemed obsess obsessive about was his gardening. Then they go into talking about he left DNA on the glass at the diner at the Soleil, which is what this police wanted. So the police gather up this DNA, they go and they have it tested. And then that Sunday they get the test results and that's when they go and they pick them up. So going on to talk about the bike path rape, rapist and you know, how often he would attack, he, you know, he would attack in the mornings his, while his victims jogged or strolled outdoors. He would go in and he would prepare a spot in advance, uh, maybe have a roll of duct tape to tuck, to tape the eyes shut. You know, to me, that tells me that he didn't want, the other thing he would do from attacking from behind is he would strangle them first and then rape them. There were only a few times when the neighborly Sanchez and the serial rapist could have intersected. Twice Sanchez was arrested for soliciting a prostitute in 1991 and 99. Twice more, Sanchez eluded capture by detectives. In 1990, Sanchez was questioned and his fingerprints were taken after a coworker reported him lurking on a bike path. Now, to me, that would have been that would have been a huge clue, especially if they didn't have any other. Um, but back in 1981, the police had interviewed Sanchez's uncle after a rape victim thought she spotted her attacker in the uncle's car at a shopping mall. Now, the uncle didn't tell police his nephew had borrowed his car until this month of this interview. Either he didn't want to put two and two together or the uncle was slow to process the information you know, really, we're not in his shoes. I mean, you got to remember, I mean, if police are coming to you and telling you that someone who you're very close to in your family and that you don't have a problem with is killing people and raping people, I wouldn't know what to believe. I mean, I know of somebody that is in my sphere that if police came to me and said, this person's doing something, I'd believe it. And I mean, I'd believe it very well, but at the same point in time, there's a lot of people in my sphere. If somebody came and they told me that somebody was doing something, I'd have a hard time believing it because a lot of people maintain a facade, you know, when they're around other people, they can, they can put on an act, you know, psychopaths do a very, very, very good job of doing that. 
They can put it on and act for anybody. And they can make you believe anything. They can make you believe that they're the nicest person in the world and they never hurt anybody. They can even make you believe that they might be just gay and haven't come out of the closet and that they're really not going to hurt anybody. They wouldn't hurt a fly. They wouldn't hurt a child. Oh, but you can damn well guarantee that behind closed doors, they're the fucking biggest monster ever. And that everybody in that household walks on eggshells. That's how big of a monster they are. And if you want clues for anything, I don't care who you are. All you have to do, if you want to know what's going on in someone's household, how people act, how people react to things, if they have small children, watch them play. Watch them play with other children. Watch them do it in a home, a home living area section. And what that is, is if they're playing like um, with a kitchen service or if they're playing babies or something like that. And, and as daycare providers, daycare teachers, preschool teachers, we were required to keep notes on all children. And you had to do observations. There were different kinds of observations that you had to do. You had to do quick observations. And then you had to do detailed notes where you had to literally write down everything verbatim that they were saying to and what the other child was saying, what they were doing exactly at that time. And then you had to, um, there were, there were other observations you could do. And I'm telling you what, as teachers, kids give you all kinds of information without them actually saying it to you. They, they can get, they, you can, you can, you know how a parent speaks to a child without that parent actually being there. You know how they respond to discipline without that parent being there. You know how they take in information. Kids are sponges. And I'm not telling you this to be like, walk, you know, be super careful about how you say things and stuff like that. What I'm saying is, is if you ever have a question about how your partner's behaving around your kid or how, you know, if you, if you think something's going on or whatever, just watch how your kids play. That gives you all the information you ever need. I mean, seriously, I mean, kids will divulge anything. I mean, I don't know how many times I had kids tell me that they, you know, walked in on mommy doing whatever. And, you know, it was a very embarrassing moment for that parent, but you know, you would never say anything to them because you wouldn't want that kid to get in trouble. And, you know, you just, Oh, okay. You know that maybe that's something that we don't talk about. That's something that's private for mommy. And maybe we should knock on doors but then there's times when you have a kid going up and as soon as mom walks in, mom poked her pants yesterday. And of course, mom's face turns beet red. You know, that's something we don't talk about. You know, I'm telling you, kids are sponges. They are like the walking encyclopedias of a household. You want to know what's going on? They will tell you what's going on. And, and, and it's no joke. But anyways, back to this. Like I said, when they spoke to the neighbors, they were all just hoping that it was his evil twin. Um, 
that was a quote by Joyce Heath. Um, none of them wanted to even allow the thought that he was an evil person. Um, you know, this man was, he was what you would consider your normal everyday buddy next door. He would have parties in his backyard. He would, you know, just have everybody over for, you know, a typical picnic and, you know, mix couples, work friends, neighbors, and, you know, and they, and even they all said this guy never even made any sexual remarks about a woman. He never swore. You'd go to his parties and you'd have a beer or two with him. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of neighbor. And then, and then all of a sudden this information starts trickling in. And, and when the police started getting this information, they, their, their surveillance started because of a string of events when one, the DNA was determined it belonged to a Hispanic man. Two, an FBI profiler said he probably solicited prostitutes. And three, another investigator reviewing old cases came upon Sanchez's uncle and the episode with the car. So those three all came together at one time and it all pointed to him. So they finally said they had an aha moment and it was in it all centered around Sanchez. This led police to knock on Sanchez's door on the pretense of recovering an unlicensed gun in the hopes of obtaining a sample of DNA. Now, he, Sanchez lost his license, and this is why I'm saying New York has some really funky-ass laws, because of his prostitution arrest, but never turned in his weapon, and the police went to take his 22 caliber pistol but were unable to get the D DNA from it. Uh, so they needed to follow him. And then that left them to, led them to the, the restaurant of Soleil. So, and, and like I said, I, I don't agree with taking his license because he, he got a, D, a prostitute, a prostitution charge. If she was underage, different story. All of this came together. Like I said, the DNA results came back that Sunday. Sanchez was arrested the next morning. And then everything, again led up to him being put on trial. The daughter of Mazur was quoted as saying, he can't ruin anybody else's life now. I never had anybody here for my prom or my first date or any of my other things. Your mother should be here for, which broke my heart. That she lost her mom at a critical point in time in her life. Was her mom doing the best that she could at the time? More than likely. But where she, where she grew up at, I don't know. It didn't say where she went, if she went into the system or what. But that, that quote out of all of this broke my heart because no little kid needs to lose a parent. I mean, they really don't. But anyways, this guy, with all of these investigations and this particular case, he received, he was sentenced to 75 years in prison without any chance of parole on August 15th of 07.
Sanchez was mentioned in the crime drama Criminal Minds in season four episode Zoe's Reprise. So, I mean, this particular case itself is somewhat famous in itself of because of the bike path rapist and um, the bike path killer. I mean, because he, he kept it over a long period of time. He stopped in 1994, and if he hadn't picked back up, unless he needed to get another job or had to have his DNA or had done a, um, a familial match for the, for the new 23andMe and stuff, he could have kept going for another 10, 15 years. So, I mean, but there was, but there was something that made him go back out and do it again. But for whatever reason, back in 1994, it made him stop. You know, I mean, the killing of the 15-year-old in 1985 obviously didn't make him, make him stop. So something in 1984 or 1994 made him take a, a step back and reevaluate, and he stopped for 16 years. That's a long period of time. He wasn't in jail because they would have noted that he was in jail. So something... That happened during that particular time period, during that, during the physical attack, whatever made him reevaluate what he was doing. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and the only person that really does know is him and the person that was there during the attack. So that being said, um, I hope you enjoy this. And if you have any questions please leave them on the facebook page and i will get back to you with the i will post some pictures of el tamio sanchez they did not post any pictures of the victims remember we are on facebook we are on oh my goodness we are on so many different things anymore uh we are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, we are on WordPress, we are soon to be on iTunes, we are on Spotify. Remember, Instagram is K T H Y B R D L Y. I will soon I will get that change as quickly as I can for all things Erie at from Erie PA and um, be posting under that. Again, I really hope you are enjoying this and I want to say thank you again to everyone who is who has been downloading this. If you are enjoying this, please let your friends know. Hopefully they will be passing this on. We have been slowly making our way around the world. We have Canada, Australia, and New Zealand under our belt. We are slowly crawling across the country and we are making our way from the east coast to the west coast this is kathy and i am signing off